This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Stories that Jay and I look at on this episode of This Week in FCPA include the conviction of Roger Ung, lessons from the DOJ's first cyber fraud settlement, depression as a corporate materiality issue, should CCOs be required to certify compliance, CEO fine for impeding a whistleblower, board oversight, compliance in recessionary times, the intersection of water and corruption, Disclosing DEI and diversity information and data governance best practices. All this and more on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 297 for the week ending April 15, 2022, the Ung Convected Edition. Jay, as the New York Mets have the best record in baseball, and we both prepare for the celebrations of Easter and Passover. We're back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. What say ye? I say uh, let's dive into this Roger Ng case. It's fascinating, and I'd love you to share with our listeners what's happening. Uh, So first of all, I have to correct you as I was corrected. It is not Ng, it's Ng. Ng, okay. So Roger Ng. Ng. Uh, and, um, by the way, cool new background. Thank you. Very cool. Uh, and yes, I'm in a different room listeners. So, uh, hopefully back to the worldwide headquarters of, uh, the compliance podcast network that we're in our, uh, auxiliary office this afternoon. Uh, nevertheless, Roger Ng, uh, rather convicted, uh, uh, for FCPA violations, a huge FCPA trial about eight weeks in the, uh, Eastern District of New York in Brooklyn. Um, you don't get too many FCPA trials anymore, or you probably never did, but this was a significant individual trial. So uh, it was interesting. There were three categories of evidence against Ung, and uh, we should backtrack probably. He was managing director at Goldman Sachs, alleged to be a part of the M, uh, 1MDB uh, fraud scandal where uh, Goldman Sachs floated bonds uh, to the tune of $600 million for 1MDB. Um, uh, a fellow named Jay Lowe uh, orchestrated a um, stealing of that money, uh, fraudulently taking it, and uh, about uh, they stole about two-thirds of that money. And uh, that was given to the former prime minister of Malaysia and also split between Ung's boss, Tim Leisner, and, and Ung himself. Uh, and others uh, who were paid bribes in the entire process. So a huge scandal. 
Goldman Sachs paid uh, somewhere uh, north of uh, 2.9 to 3.1 billion in fines and penalties, literally across the globe. The biggest anti-corruption scandal, uh, the biggest FCPA case, um, uh, huge black eye on Goldman Sachs. Tim Leisner, Ung's boss, uh, pled guilty and uh, forfeited 44 million and is awaiting sentencing. Ung choose, chose to go to trial and uh, roll the dice and lost. So uh, three key elements to the case, Jay. Number one was the direct or the testimony of Tim Leisner. Uh, Leisner, uh, once again, if I had asked you, uh, if I told you this story, <laughs> that someone uh, was married twice to two different women, um, was a serial liar, uh, lied to both wives, both times about being married or not married to other women, lied to his business colleagues at Goldman Sachs, lied to other colleagues, slept with the wives of friends. He would say, yeah, I really can't use a character like that, Tom. Too unbelievable. Um, but he was, and he basically admitted to all of that. Um, on the witness stand, when asked by defense counsel, are you a good liar? He said, well, I wouldn't use the word good. Um, so uh, a serial liar, and he testified that Ung was the driving force at Goldman Sachs behind this, named uh, numerous times that Ung was involved uh, directly in either orchestrating the bribes or receiving the kickbacks. A uh, second piece of evidence was uh, FBI agent testified as to the money trail. And there were numerous shell corporations involved here, largely not in the name of Roger Ung, uh, in his wife's name, in his mother's name. And the FBI agent was able to tra trace the transfer of funds pretty close to 30, uh, $35 million, which was alleged to be Ung's kickback. And then the defense was the wife of Roger Ung testified that the monies in the shell corporations were actually her family money and that she had invested that with Leisner's wife long ago before any of this happened. And the $35 million that she and her husband got was a return on that investment. And she invested allegedly $6 million around 2006-07 and uh, 10 years later pulled it out to the tune of $35 million. Uh, so that was a defense. That was who the jury uh, chose or had in front of them as evidence. Um, the testimony of um, the wife uh, was uh, one commentator or one person who watched it said she was completely uh, twisted uh, by defense, by the prosecutor, prosecution, and it sounded completely implausible because there was no documents for this money trail. So they violated the document, document, document requirement as set forth by Tom Fox, compliance evangelist. Uh, and so the jury didn't didn't buy that. Um, there have been uh, the uh, Ung has not been sentenced yet. <clears throat> there is a huge question about whether um, the internal controls provisions to the FCPA apply to him. Uh, they, I think everyone listening to this pod is probably familiar with those, Jay, and certainly they apply to companies who have FCPA jurisdiction uh, cast upon them. But um, the defense has argued, yes, they apply to Goldman Sachs, but not to Roger Ung. Uh, if they are found to apply to him, he's probably toast because he did violate Goldman's internal controls policies. And the question then becomes, is that 
a criminal violation if you violate a company's internal controls? I think the answer under the FBA, FCPA is the answer is yes. Also, an issue is there's a huge discovery kerfuffle where over 100,000 documents were not turned over to the defense. Around Timothy Leisner, uh, the judge delayed the trial a week during the mid-testimony of Mr. Leisner. Now, now, if you ask me, that could happen in a movie. Documents not being turned over? Yeah. Surely you, Jeff. <laughs> so uh, the judge has yet to rule on that as a potential mistrial, so the judge could throw out the whole thing. Uh, we will have to wait uh, and see. And Timothy Leisner is scheduled to be uh, sentenced July 6th. So uh, we'll see what the judge thinks of his testimony. But all in all, Jay, a huge win for the government. The ghost of Gunsting past shot showcase from 2010, I think, are fully excised now. Um, if um, the Department of Justice is serious about going after individuals, as Lisa Monaco said in her speech uh, to the ABA White Collar Defense Bar in October 2021, this would be a great jumping off point for them to do so. Uh, and to get more, frankly, uh, guilty pleas uh, because they have shown the fortitude not only to go to trial but to get a conviction. So what's, what thoughts might you have, Jay? Um, I was waiting for you to get to the point, Tom, about uh, the government not making those files um, available to the defense. So uh, I'd, I'd still like to see whether or not we get through and there's not a mistrial. So I think that's a little bit of a black cloud hanging above DOJ's head. But, uh, you know, this is a case that's been in the news for a long time, and it's nice to see that it is uh, moving towards a conclusion. So, Jay, um, what did you see uh, in the Department of Justice's first cyber fraud settlement? But before you get to that, I want to give a shout out to Annie Huggins, because she is a third year law student at George Washington, and she wrote an article on that topic for the FCPA blog. So what does Annie uh, highlights does she give us? Yeah, she has uh, five lessons for compliance officers uh, taken from the DOJ's cyber fraud settlement. Uh, as Tom said, this is from the FCPA blog. Five months after the U.S. Department of Justice announced its cyber fraud initiative, the DOJ announced its first settlement pursuant to the terms of its agreement with the DOJ Comprehensive Health Services, LLC, will pay $930,000 to resolve, among other things, its violation of the False Claims Act. There are compliance lessons to be drawn from this settlement, and compliance officers would be wise to think proactively about any changes that they must make in the wake of this development. Here are the five lessons. First, accountability is key for the DOJ. The Department of Justice is serious about cyber fraud, this settlement demonstrates the DOJ's commitment to using civil enforcement tools to hold government contractors accountable for failure to follow cybersecurity standards. Second, identify your risks. This indicates the need to identify and respond to risks in contractor cyber uses. Contractors should assess and ensure any representations made to the government on the security of information that are current and correct. A check-the-box mentality is no longer acceptable in cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is an ongoing endeavor that should be treated as such by contractors. Notably, the settlement occurred without evidence of a cyber incident, meaning liability can exist based solely on substandard data protection practices. Fourth, 
The best defense is a good offense. A contractor's cybersecurity controls should be evolving to match the landscape of cyber threats. This involves bolstering and investing in cybersecurity early on to thwart threats. And fifth, finally, if you're in a hole, stop digging. Contractors should plan through the inevitability that they may have a cybersecurity issue, plan for the worst, and hope for the best. If a contractor finds itself under DOJ's scrutiny for a cyber-related incident, full cooperation with the DOJ may be critical. In the event of a cyber or ransomware attack, contractors become a victim too, and it should be viewed as such. Make that case to the DOJ early on and strongly consider cooperating with law enforcement, including the FBI Cyber Division. Big picture, contractors should consider how they would move forward in the event of a ransomware attack and if they get back on their feet without paying a ransom. As current events make clear, no company is immune from cyber risk. Being proactive and aggressive to prevent and mitigate these risks will be critical in the wake of ongoing challenges. Tom, in these days, how can depression be a corporate materiality issue? Well, Jay, uh, first of all, just as we gave a shout out to Annie Huggins, I want to give a shout out to Dick Casson, uh, former editor of the FCPA blog, now um, kind of roving editor at large. And he has really taken this position to uh, discuss some topics that, frankly, we never talk about in compliance. And his topic this week, or one of his topics this week, was employee health in the form of depression. And uh, several people talk about that, so I won't say it's never mentioned. But when was the last time you saw a presentation at any pre-pandemic conference about depression for compliance practitioners? I can answer that question. It's not rhetorical, but really is. None. Um, and so... He's, he's writing it and raising issues that I think should be raised, even if it only affects just a minuscule number of people. So kudos to Dick. But what he said was, and it's a little bit broader than just depression and compliance professionals, it's employee mental health and depression in the workplace. And his broader point is, Jay, should that be or can it be material? And my first thought was, well, one, how would you ever know um, because of uh, HIPAA? employee privacy, but maybe the answer is kind of channel your inner AMI, listen to your employees, survey your employees, talk to your employees, um, uh, and don't just on an annual basis do that. Uh, Go in and do some surveys, talk to people, see how they're feeling, see the things that concern them, Um, and and have uh, build a trust with them that they will answer you. Uh, honestly. So it really, uh, his piece really brought up for me a lot, Jay, a lot of things that you could or should do. Um, but in employee mental health, should that be, if, uh, should that be reported as a material issue? Um, and should companies be assessing that because an unhealthy employee is not a productive employee and an unhealthy employee who's mentally unhealthy is equally so. So uh, kudos to Dick uh, for raising all of this. And um, uh, it's, it's like I said, it's given us a lot to think about. Jay, uh, next we had um, Mike Volkoff weigh in on the question that uh, we have seen debated about whether 
CCOs should be required to certify compliance programs. What's Mike's take on this, Jay? Uh, Thanks, Tom. This comes to us from Mike's own Corruption, Crime, and Compliance blog. And uh, a couple weeks ago, the Biden administration's Department of Justice promised aggressive white-collar enforcement. On the flip side, the DOJ has recognized the importance of effective ethics and compliance program and assist the Attorney General of the Criminal Division, Kenneth Polite, delivered an important speech on ethics and compliance. His speech reiterated the importance of the Justice Department's 2020 evaluation of corporate compliance programs, DOJ guidance. However, AAG Polite emphasized several important aspects of DOJ guidance and introduced some new initiatives to increase accountability. AAG Polite has served as a chief compliance officer and is well familiar with the challenges of the job. He first lists the important elements of an effective compliance program that they need to be well-designed, adequately resourced and empowered, and effective in practice. Second, he explained that the DOJ's evaluation of corporate compliance programs focuses not only on actual resources dedicated to the compliance function, but also includes assessments of qualifications. AAG Polite reiterated prior DOJ statements that the DOJ intends to appoint independent compliance monitors in appropriate cases. In another major policy modification, he noted that the creation of the Corporate Enforcement Compliance Policy Unit, CECP, to play a leading role in evaluating corporate compliance programs. He noted that companies have to face consequences for violating settlement agreements, which can result from breaches and lead to extension of settlement agreements. And here's the meaty stuff that Tom previewed. To underscore the importance of the role of a CCO and to ensure the CCOs maintain independence and authority in the company, Pulley noted that for all corporate resolutions, that would include guilty pleas, deferred prosecution agreements, and non-prosecution agreements, that DOJ will require either the CEO and the CCO to certify at the end of the term an agreement that the company's compliance program is reasonably designed and implemented to detect and prevent violations. The addition of this certification requirement creates significant issues for both CEOs and CCOs. In the event that the certification turns out to be inaccurate or possibly misleading, the CEOs and the CCOs could face potential legal liability. Of course, such liability depends on specific facts and circumstances, and it's hard to imagine a CEO or CCO executing such certifications without appropriate regard for accuracy. On the other hand, the CCO certification requirement would elevate the importance of the CCO in the company, enhance its authority, and hopefully its independence. This is a fascinating proposal that requires additional evaluation and design prior to implementation. Tom, while speaking about CEOs, tell us about the one who was fined by the SEC for impeding a whistleblower. Yeah, Jay, this was an interesting matter. And uh, both Aaron Nicodemus and Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, wrote about it. A uh, fine and penalty was levied or actually agreed to by the defendant in this case, who's a former CEO of a tech company who engaged in accounting fraud and um, ancillary to this, a internal whistleblower uh, raised these issues to the company. The CEO and the CFO, who were co-founders, uh, put together a campaign 
to frustrate this internal whistleblower's access to information and to monitor him. Uh, he, he did, prior to that time, submit a tip to the SEC whistleblower program, and that tip was accepted, and that's what led to the, the fine and penalty against the company itself, and then the criminal uh, sentencing of the CEO as well. But um, here, the CEO was fined for impeding the investigation. Now, Jay, what's interesting is two, two things. One, um, certainly the SEC has uh, room to, a discretion rather, to penalize a company for discriminating against a whistleblower, uh, well-known and, and, and pretty clear. But uh, here it was, and that, but that discrimination has been seen typically as uh, employment status, either firing them or uh, uh, discriminating against them by bad re uh, reference after, thereafter. Well, here we have conduct during the pendency of the employment relationship, and that is new. Um, Hester Pierce, a uh, Republican commissioner on the SEC, says this is an extension of SEC powers and should not be allowed and voted against it. But it really is retaliation. It's, it's certainly retaliation in a different way than we've seen. So I applaud the SEC for, uh, for going this route. As I mentioned, this was an agreed um, settlement. So uh, that means if a uh, defendant agrees to it, that um, they will um, uh, have some input into the cease and desist order. So there may be more to this than we know, um, but um, interesting order. Uh, an interesting approach by the SEC. So, um, Jay, we are waiting. Uh, I suppose I should have told you, but we're having a special guest on this uh, this weekend at PTA. And uh, Florence Summeray uh, from ECI is going to join us as, as soon as she turns her camera on. So uh, perhaps we can bring her in. And see, Florence, are you there? Calling Florence. There she is, Florence. I can't even see myself. Hold on. <laughs> Hi, Tom. Hello. Hi, Jay. How are you? Hey there. How are you, Florence? So, nice. for all of our nice listeners, we have Florence as uh, starring <laughs> as Florence. But as a special guest uh, for this week in FCPA, because Florence has some really exciting news about the upcoming ECI impact. So, Florence, could we maybe jump into it and could you tell us uh, what ECI sure. impact is? Sure. So, ECI's um, annual conference, Impact 22, is the premier gathering of the year for ECI and our ethics and compliance officers and practitioners you know, who look to improve their organizational ENC initiatives, you know, while increasing their efficiency and reducing costs. So folks, um, you know, on have come to our conference for actionable strategies. They can implement right away um, benchmarks and the opportunity would network with like-minded professionals um, in this space. So we're excited. It's it's next week, April 19th to 22nd. Um, and we're so excited to have every one of us join, every one of you join us next week. 
Florence, there are some fabulous keynotes that you, Pat, and the team have put together. Uh, could you tell us about those? And, and anyone who's been to an ECI event knows there's always a Deputy Attorney General, and we're thrilled to have her again. But let's start with that. And we have SEC folks. So who from the, from the government at the very top is going to be visiting with us? So Lisa Monaco the Deputy Attorney General for um, the U.S. Department of Justice will be our opening keynote on Tuesday. So we are starting off strong. And um, just so everyone's aware, following that keynote, we have a post-keynote um, discussion with former um, DOJ officials, and some of you might know them, is Sally Yates, as well as David Ogden, their former you know, Attorney Generals. Well, Sally was acting Attorney General um, prior, but uh, David Ogden as well. So we are exceptionally excited this year because, you know, not only do we have her, but we also have, as you pointed out, Dan Berkowitz with the, the general counsel of the Security Exchange Commission. And he will also um, follow another, you know, keynote panel discussion with some folks um, from, uh, what is it, KPMG? as well as King and Spalding. So exceptional keynotes and post-keynote discussions following those. And then we also have um, Francis Ingham. He is the Director General of one of the largest PR, Public Relations Communications Association, um, who will talk about you know, strategies and leadership with ESG. And last but not least, we'll have um, folks from, we have Leo McKay from, uh, sorry, Lockheed Martin, as well as um, two other panelists that will join him about some of the you know, current events that are happening um, with Russia and Ukraine and the impacts of, e, um, of ENC on programs. So huge lineup, excited next week. This is by far one of the, you know, like uh, full of, you know, enforcement officials that we've ever had, I think, in the last you know, since I've been here. So Florence, there seems to be some new programming this year. Can you tell us how uh, ECI Impact will take a look at ESG? Sure. So um, we will, we've added a new track. We've heard, you know, from our practitioners that, you know, ESG obviously is top of mind for many of you. And so we've added about four new sessions to this year's program on top of you know, the other sessions that we have. And some of them, you know, I'll just name those sessions. There's four, uh, sustainability at Dell, driving innovation and impact, introduction to ESG for ENC professionals, the future of ESG reporting and assurance, and creating order from chaos, like a roadmap for aligning E and C and ESG. So we're excited about this year. I think Last year, ECI convened a working group around ESG, produced a working group paper around that. Um, so it's just, you know, following up on the conversations that we've had this past year um, and really, you know, addressing the, you know, challenges that this community has had, um, especially because of the new proposed rules that were just released last month by the SEC. You know, that's, uh, that's a really key point, uh, Florence, that uh, literally uh, they were just released, so we'll be able to come or have a discussion around those. But one of the things that I really enjoy about ECI 
uh, as you might guess, with someone who has a podcast called Compliance Into the Weeds, there's some great Into the Weeds sessions. And I was wondering if you just might be able to highlight some of the more uh, technically focused or really weedy sessions for all of us compliance geeks out there who love what ECI gives us. So following the lines of, you know, ESG, there is an ESG, you know, session regarding uh, the future of ESG reporting and assurance. So you will definitely walk away with um, some of the key metrics that are out there in the industry. And I invite you to all attend that. A couple of more uh, sessions that uh, we have at this event is how to double your speak-up reports. Um, Royal Mail will be talking about this as well as provide some data around some of their new user-friendly speak-up platform um, and then provide that during that presentation. Another session that many of you might be interested in watching is successful engagement to seamless integration and advancing your compliance program. That is um, presented by Johnson & Johnson, and so they will also be presenting some data for all of you to, you know, use and use right away into your programs. And last but not least, I just want to touch on one more is, you know, getting comfortable with the uncomfortable, um, and that is with BP. So they're going to talk about some of their new programs that they're doing, I think, believe around investigations. Um, but that that will be all, you know, that will be presented during impact next year. So I just wanted to give you a few because, you know, I want everyone to go to our agenda and kind of check out <laughs> some of the sessions. We have about 25 plus sessions this year. So I just want to, you know, indicate that we're having more sessions you know, this year we have some stellar keynotes that talk about kind of the emerging issues as well as, you know, what's happening um, today in the current events. Uh, and I think especially for all of you that, um, you know, are involved in shaping your ENC programs, I think, you know, these uh, keynotes will give you a lot to walk away with and uh, just implement right away into your programs. So, Florence, everything just sounds uh, outstanding. Unfortunately, our time with you is coming to an end. Okay. Just wondering if there's a place online where you can direct our listeners where they can learn more about information and registration. Sure. Uh, just go to www.ethics.org forward slash impact. And uh, we have a special code. It's called TOM20, so original where you will receive 20% off your registration. So you just enter that code at the uh, checkout and you'll be able to register right away. Well, Florence, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to come on today to tell us about ECI Impact. I want to doubly thank you for creating my own special vanity code <laughs> for the listeners to this week in FCPA. And I look forward to seeing and interacting with you next week at ECI Impact 2022. Great. Thank you so much, Tom. And thanks, Jay. We'll see you online next week and everyone else. You can count on it. Thanks, Florence. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks, Florence. We'll be right back with more on This Week in FCPA after a quick message from our sponsor.
All right. So thank you, Florence. That was great. I hope your our listeners will join us. If you've never been to Impact uh, Go, uh, it's worth it for the keynotes and Pat Harned, but there's so much more. So uh, we're going to link to that code and registration and information in the show notes. But back to our list, Jay. Um, I saw a really interesting article by Jeff Kaplan about board oversight of compliance. What does he have for us from his conflict of interest blog. Yeah, this is really interesting. Uh, Jeff starts off uh, remembering that there was a time when a company's merely having a code of conduct would be enough to dismiss a claim against the company's directors under the Caremark uh, case for failed compliance program oversight. Unfortunately, those days are now long gone. In a forthcoming article in the Journal of Corporate Law, Max Oversight Duties, How Boeing Signifies a Shift in corporate law, Roy Shapira of the University of Chicago writes, in September 2021, the Boeing 737 MAX debacle turned into an important moment in corporate law. A Delaware court allowed a derivative lawsuit brought by Boeing's shareholders to proceed based on the theory that Boeing's directors breached their oversight duties by not doing enough to monitor, prevent, and react to fatal airline safety issues. Shapiro further notes that for many years, some compliance was enough compliance. Boeing shows that this is clearly not the case today. Consider the following examples. Boeing's boarded agenda reflected allocating time to discuss safety, yet the court criticized them for only allotting five minutes. Boeing's board minutes invoked safety several times, yet the court criticized them for only doing this in passing. The minutes also showed that the management, although management shared information on airplane safety, yet the court faulted them for not treating information from management more critically. All in all, Boeing shows just how much courts are willing to scrutinize what directors should have known and how they should have reacted. Note that such scrutiny under the Marshawn case handed down last year does not apply to all risk areas, but it does apply to, quote, mission critical, close quote, ones, which airplane safety clearly is for Boeing, and Shapira notes for large companies there can be many such areas. The enhanced focus on mission-critical risk areas will indeed require many boards to up their games. One obvious way to start with this is by performing a compliance and ethics board assessment, meaning an assessment of how the board is likely to fare in any Caremark case brought against its directors. This would include determining whether the board has appropriate identified mission risk, mission critical risk areas. It would also entail ascertaining how the board has enacted relevant governance documentation and what information it has both from written reports and in-person presentations. Among other things, the assessment would involve assuring that the board was in fact doing all the things the government's documentation provides they should do. Lastly, this type of assessment should be conducted by an independent expert. That is, given how powerful directors can be in a company asking its internal staff for law compliance, audit information, etc., to assess the efficacy of a board's compliance and ethics program oversight might be too much to get an unbiased view by using internal resources. Tom, uh, we're back to you. What is the story on compliance in recessionary times? So, Jay, um, this is something that uh, I've written about 
uh, over the years because we tend to have those in the energy space. But our good friend Jim Deloach um, wrote a great piece in CCI. And first of all, anything Jim writes, you need to read, period. Uh, but this one is even more propitious, I think, because he talks about having a 12-step contingency plan for recessionary times. And uh, the great thing about recessionary times, Jay, is they never go away. Uh, they'll always be back, whether you play the theme from Wel Welcome Back, Cotter, or whether you play the theme from Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. Uh, recessionary times will be uh, back with us. And so he lists uh, things, uh, really a 12-step process, beginning with margin management down to balance sheet management, plan execution, recovery. And um, the thing that he says is twofold. Number one, develop your plan now before the crisis hits. But something we hear from uh, Jonathan Armstrong and Jonathan Marks uh, more than from time to time, which is practice your plan. And uh, both talk about this, whether it's a contingency plan, whether it's a data breach plan, whether it's a disaster emergency pl plan, whatever that plan may be, don't just have a plan up on the shelf in your notebook. Uh, take that notebook down and, and practice it so that you can pressure test weaknesses. So great article from Jim and uh, something that unfortunately we may all need to, to ramp up our preparations for as the economy lurches forward. Um, Jay, I had never thought about the intersection of water and compliance, but Rick Messick has. What has he been thinking about? Uh, a mark of progress in the fight against corruption is the growing attention to corrupt that attention corruption fighters are paying to its nuts and bolts. A bribe is a bribe, whether paid to rig a big on a bid on a public works contract or duck sanctions for polluting a stream. And laws against bribery and appeals to both sectors to refrain from taking a bribe have their place. But a strategy for preventing bribery in public works contracts, the water sector, or indeed any sector the economy dem demands more, here are some questions that we should be asking. Where in the sector is bribery most common? What do some public servants take them while others refuse? What are the economic incentives public servants and their private sector counterparts face? What social norms operate in the background? And what's the legal regime governing sector operations? In short, what makes it tick? Only when corruption fighters understand a sector can they divide means to prevent corruption and identify red flags for when they may be present. Teaming an expert corruption fighter with an authority on the sector is the obvious approach and that's exactly what the UK's Curbing Corruption has done, producing 15 sector-level studies of corruption, ranging from agriculture and education to government, shipping, and telecommunications. A 16th on corruption and water is now in progress, and the project team comprises Mark Pyman, co-founder of Curbing Corruption, and Laura Jean Palmer Maloney, a hydrogeographer, expert in coastal resource management, now with the visual teaching technologies. Mark and Laura Jean are soliciting comments on a briefing paper listed to listing what they believe are the key corruption issues across the range of issues on the water sector. In the show notes, we've included their contact information and a link to the briefing paper. And we encourage you to reach out to Mark and Laura Jean with any relative comments or ideas. 
Thanks for helping them out. Tom, we're up to number nine now. Why should an organization disclose diversity information? Jay, this article comes to us from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. Uh, And I thought it was a really interesting article uh, because the author, uh, I will try to pronounce his name, Antonuke Adrian, uh, or something like that. Anyway, he's an associate professor of law at Fordham University, so I'm sorry if I butchered your name. Nevertheless, he talks about really reputational and other stakeholder reasons to uh, talk about um, diversity information and how it can be used as, as really a net positive in recruiting, in dealing with stakeholders that would include employees, potential employees, uh, uh, customers, third parties, and other groups that are really not considered uh, in reasons to report information in your 10K. So um, I thought that was an interesting approach, and it really speaks to not only this expansion of stakeholder groups, but how companies can use things that they're doing on a regular basis, if they are doing them on a regular basis, and make those uh, really a business positive and a reputational positive going forward. So an interesting article, and I think his thoughts around uh, diversity, DEI, and and other sustainability issues would also apply to compliance information and the compliance professional. So, Jay, for our last article, uh, we have some data governance best practices uh, what did you see from E. Ray Elisicle? Thank you for going for that one. It was running through my head, and I didn't know how I was going to do it. So the author, uh, this comes to us from the Dataconomy, D-A-T-A-C-O-N-O-M-Y uh, website. And uh, data governance, a good data governance strategy focuses on establishing who has control and power over the firm's data assets within an organization. It includes people, procedures, and technology that come together to protect and handle these assets. Organizations of different types and industries require varying degrees of data governance. It's especially crucial for firms that adhere to regulatory standards, such as finance and insurance. Organizations must have formal data management procedures to control their data through the life to comply with regulations. Another aspect of data governance is protecting the company and sensitive data, which should be a top priority for business nowadays. Data breaches are becoming more increasingly common with governments passing legislation as evidenced by HIPAA, GDPR, CCPA, and other privacy laws. The author has gathered an overview of the best data governance practices for your organization. Number one, begin small and work your way up to the big picture. People, procedures, and technology are all critical critical aspects of data management. Keep all three elements in mind when developing and executing your plan. Two, get business stakeholders on board. You need top-level executives to buy in and develop a a data governance strategy. But getting the go-ahead is only the beginning. You also want to engage your audience and encourage them to take action so that your plan is implemented throughout business. The ideal approach is to get executives interested in your governance strategy and make the business case. Three, define data governance team roles. When roles, responsibilities, and ownership structure are well-defined, data governance methods are more likely to be effective. 
The foundation for any governance strategy is the creation of team members, data, governance functions that go across your company. Number four, to measure progress, use metrics. It's critical to track progress and display the effectiveness of your data governance strategy, just as it would be with any other shift. Once you've acquired executive buy-in for your business case, you'll need evidence to support each stage of your transition. Five, encourage an open and frequent communication. Whether you're just getting started or your data governance initiative has been going for some long time, stay in touch early and often. It's critical to communicate regularly and effectively allows you to illustrate the strategy's impacts on the firm. And finally, number six, data governance is not a project. See it as a method. Creating data governance can feel like starting a new initiative. You might be inclined to form a group to work on a project while the rest of the organization waits for you to finish. This is when many organizations' data governance plan come to a halt. It's not enough to implement a strategy once and then declare it's finished, just like Tom talked about something sitting on your shelf. There is no defined ending date or conclusion. Instead, it's a continuing practice added as part of your organization's standard policy. Data governance becomes an aspect of everyday life at your company in the same way dress codes or leave policies do. So, Tom, that's the end of our top 10 stories. Why don't you tell us about the potpourri of podcasts we have for the week? Oh, Jay, we have a great potpourri. Uh, first of all, I had part one of a two-part visit with Matt Galvin and Dan Kahn. Uh, the part one is about the how do you deal with the Department of Justice if you're in the middle of an investigation. Dan, obviously former head of the FCPA unit, head of the fraud section, acting uh, head, assistant head of the uh, criminal division, has some great insights from the government perspective. Matt, who's gone through it from the uh, in-house compliance professionals perspective, talks about uh, talks about it from his side of the fence. Uh, part two. We're going to take a deep dive into the Lisa Monaco speech, that post on Monday. Uh, I had the great opportunity to have lunch or rather dinner with my good friend and colleague Jay Rosen recently in Los Angeles uh, when I was attending a podcast conference. Equally great was an interview I did with John Champion, who is on a 15-year mission to do a podcast on every Star Trek television animated and movie episode. Uh, he is well into that now. I think he's in year 10, uh, maybe year nine, uh, but he's got a few years to go. And John works with Rod Roddenberry, son of Gene Roddenberry, at Roddenberry Entertainments. And uh, I sat down with uh, John and we talked about his mission. We talked about missionlog.podcast.com, which is a podcast that he does, among others, uh, all things Star Trek. Uh, and it was just a ton of fun. Uh, part one, uh, we went from TOS or the original series to TNG for the next generation. Uh, part two from TNG literally up to today in the Picard series. Um, this month on The Compliance Life, I'm thrilled to have visited with Susan Divers and am visiting with Susan Divers, Director of Thought Leadership at LRN. Uh, Susan was uh, sat in the CCO chair at AECOM. And so we talk about her journey to the CCO chair, and then thereafter at LRN. Jay, um, in it, uh, we talked about uh, and we visited with Florence about impact uh, ECI Impact 2022. We've linked to it in the show notes. You can get a discount if you're a listener to this podcast. Remember, Tom 20, can't get any better than that. 
Uh, also, um, in May, I hope that you will join us at Compliance Week 2022. And uh, from May 16 to May 18, uh, we've got uh, links to that event in the uh, show notes. And you also can get a discount to that event uh, using the code FOX200. So check that out. And Jay, we have a special shout out to an old friend who's back. Once again, proving you can check out from compliance, but you can never leave. And I'm referring to Sam Rubenfeld. Sam was uh, one of the original uh, folks at the Wall Street Journal and uh, Risk and Compliance, what's currently the Risk and Compliance Journal. And he uh, left us for a while, but now he's back and he's working for MLEX. He's going to be a reporter in the compliance and uh, FCPA space. Uh, Sam's a great guy. He's a great reporter. He's a great writer. I am so thrilled to have him back uh, with us. I've already chatted with him uh, about him coming back. So uh, all I can say is uh, welcome back, Sam Rubenfeld. Great to have you back, Sam. Uh, if anybody would like to get in touch with us, Tom Fox is the voice of compliance, and he can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I'm Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor. You can reach me at the initial J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. On behalf of Tom Fox and myself, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 297 for the week ending April 15th, 2022, the UNG Convicted Edition. We appreciate you spending some of your week with us, and we look forward to seeing you next week when we take a look at This Week in FCPA. Thank you so much for listening to This Week in FCPA. Check out my podcast series, Podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.